1: It is 67 degrees. Time now for one of my favorite guests, the one and only Professor David Schultz. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, but I have to say also, wow, on the Kentucky Derby.
1: I know. My goodness. Talk about legal challenges, folks. If you didn't hear the news at the top of the hour, uh, the winner was disqualified, and a 65-to-1 shot was declared the winner, and I guess that the winner apparently bumped another horse or bumped some other horses. I haven't read the whole thing, but yikes.
2: I know. I was thinking about it. I was watching it, you know, and I'm not an expert on this. You know, I was just watching it. And so, I, you know, I I didn't know what was the foul or anything like that. But I was thinking afterwards, as a good law professor, there's, I mean, just millions of dollars just got affected. Someone's going to sue
1: somebody. Somebody's going to sue somebody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I want to start out by asking you, because I have uh, in this kind of slow cold 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 freezing warm up to spring uh i have asked you about your garden because uh, you are one of the most prolific gardeners i know and what i love about your garden is you have a, a modest space i think that's fair i hope I, I you you don't take insult at 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 that but i i think you have a modest amount of space and you get so much out of it and you also are on a main artery in st paul which I think is so cool because you you generate so much in such a little space. I think anybody can do it, which yes. is cool. I, and I think it's sort of inspirational. And I guess people have been listening to us talk about your garden. This is so cool. I want to hear about this. Well, a
2: couple of good stories. So first off, for people who want to know, it's it's just a standard city lot in St. Paul, which you no know, means not a very big lot.
1: Not a very um, big lot, yes. Um,
2: but among the things we have, we have two pear trees out front, which we generally get, um, produce about – 250 to 300 pounds of pears per year. Wow. Um, So we have a ton of it. Um, And let's see, in our backyard right now, uh, so I think spring is finally here, Um, we have asparagus coming up now. Oh, that's cool. So it's cool, but we generally have, um, we have like asparagus, we have... Three different types of raspberries. We have currants. You have
1: three different types of raspberries. Yeah, we have
2: black raspberry. Um, we have regular red raspberry, and what's called a champagne raspberry. It's kind of like a white one. Um, oh yeah,
1: I've seen those.
2: Yeah, those, and so that's and, and they come at different times of the season. So once we get to about let's say July, we will have raspberries almost continuously from July until frost. Um, wow, which is which is nice lucky and, you yes, which, yes and our yard's organic, which means no pesticides, and so when I think about how much people pay. For like a little bit Organic
1: of, strawberries or, or raspberries, rather. Raspberries, really.
2: exactly. I kid not say we should tear our house down and just have raspberries because of how much people pay for them. But we also just put in, which, which I, I guess it's a sign of spring now, um, we put in a new strawberry bed this past week, and so I'm hoping to have um, a good harvest of strawberries this year. Right.
1: And you're doing, you've switched to the raised beds, right? Correct.
2: Yeah, because we had to do some re landscaping last year. Our backyard kind of slopes down. And and water was running into our garage, basically eating out the foundation and eating out the floor. Um, So we had to have a landscaper come in last year, way beyond what I could do, because this required like hose and stuff like that. Oh wow! So we had to redo a lot of our yard, um, and we decided to do a lot of raised beds instead, Uh, because it's also it's also I think in some ways you can do a lot more. Creative things with root vegetables with a raised bed. Uh, but anyhow, the, the interesting story is I was contacted, I think it's called the Northern Gardener, and this woman's probably listening on the radio now. Um, she's a writer for that magazine. She's been listening to us forever. And she contacted me and said, listen, I've been listening to you on Esme's show for like for a gazillion years, and she wanted to know um, if she could feature my garden um, as, a, as a possible story for next year um, in the Northern Gardening magazine.
1: Well, I think, I think it would be a great story because, as I said, I mean, you have a small home. It, right. It's typical of, of a home in, in the Twin Cities. Right. It's not a huge yard. You're on a main thoroughfare uh, and y- you have just a magnificent garden. You've taken advantage of just sort of um, you know, what is it? Not It's not a walkway, but just, you know, on either side, I don't know if that's city land that you also have beautiful flowers on.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, we call it's called the, the technical term. It's called the grass median.
1: The grass between, median. Okay, <laughs> your grass median is amazing.
2: <laughs> right between the curb and the sidewalk. Yeah, it's full of daylilies, and so that um, in the in the summer um, when you get to that point, it's just this. Stunning view of orange daylilies, and then we put them there because we're on a main drag. And what happens in the winter is that the salt and the chemicals from the road basically killed everything else. I couldn't grow; I couldn't even grow crabgrass. That's how bad it is. But but apparently daylilies will survive anything. And so um, they're beautiful. Know, salt, whatever it is. So we have that and. Um, it just looks very very pretty out there and so you've seen it a few times and so it'll just be it'll just be this wave of of just gorgeous um um day that are out there um, that'll just just last forever so it's really quite nice
1: very and it absolutely is it's, it's, it's always beautiful and it's always different and changing and it's I, I hope northern gardener if you're listening to us tonight yes it's really cool and and i'm always so impressed with what you can do with, with or what anybody can do with such a small spot you know and, and again and you're obviously a very mm-hmm. busy guy and yet you've Got this, you know, really, really cool uh, garden. Uh, well, let's shift gears here. Um, a lot going on as always in the world of politics. Uh, William Barr uh, certainly um, had his is, is having his fifteen minutes <laughs> of fame. Yeah. Um, my goodness, um, he got grilled in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then um, he didn't show up in the House. Judiciary Committee. And it's funny, many, many, many years ago, I worked in Memphis and covered uh, a lawmaker there that was then in the state Senate. Uh, his name was Steve Cohen. And he was the one who, I don't know if he had to do this, but um, I guess he, he brought a, a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken to the hearing, ate the fried chicken, and then left a ceramic chicken on the witness stand where <laughs> Mr. Barr would have sat if he had gone to the House Judiciary, right. Judiciary Committee. Uh, there was also this letter from William um, Mueller saying, "Bob Mueller, uh, I, I'm sorry, Bob Mueller, the um, of course the special prosecutor, who said, "Hey, uh, Attorney General Barr, you 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 summarized my uh, special report, my special investigation. You didn't get it right, right, which I thought was fascinating. Break it down. What does all this mean?"
2: Well, it depends on we have sort of legally what it means and politically what it means. Okay, legally what this means right now, especially for Barr, not appearing before the House of Representatives, is that they could potentially move for contempt of the House for him refusing to um, um, to, to show up to testify when required to do so, and they they could eventually. Um, try to move with the contempt um, for um, some type of prosecution. Now, it will be really weird in the sense of uh, asking the Justice Department to, to prosecute um, the Attorney General for contempt of Congress, but but in kind of the odd political world we seem to be living in right now, um, that may be a possibility. So, so that that's one thing that could happen. Um, a second thing that can happen here um, is... In terms of how a lot of this plays out politically. And there's lots of things that can play out here. Okay, one of them, for example, is in terms of the fact that. If Barr doesn't show up, you know, one of the things that Congress has the authority to be able to do is what? Control the power of the purse. Um, and the House of Representatives could conceivably take, you know, action that it wants against the Justice Department or other parts of the Trump administration in terms of a budgetary issues. So that's one political. Another possibility is how does this factor into Perhaps um, impeachment proceedings um, um, in, um, against the president. Um, it, it could also factor into how the the Mueller report is viewed, because even though the the Mueller report was largely. Um, the conclusion was reached by Barr that there's nothing here in terms of obstruction of justice actually conspiracy that's the actual technical term here um, conspiracy obstruct- or obstruction of justice um, the, um, the house could reach you know different conclusions on, on the issue of, um, of of impeachment. so it plays out in lots of ways legally and politically and also we're going to say that you know what does this mean in terms of how this controversy remains salient for the 2020 presidential election,
1: right? Um, you know, one of the things Lindsey Graham, who's now the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, uh, in the Senate, um, you know, said as far as he's concerned, this is done. This issue is done. I, I don't think it's quite done, but I do see what he's saying is that you know whether you like it or not, you know, Bob Mueller's report did not find um, and people find this controversial that he did not have a finding of obstruction of justice and that that sort of is the end of it you only have uh, you know most you've got the leaders of the democratic house and Nancy Pelosi saying you know it's not worth it to go to impeachment for 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 most people i think it's done
2: i do too i do too i think i think um pelosi you know her great line where she said you know, you can agree or disagree where she said um, it's not worth it. You know, he, Trump's not worth it. I think her broader point was to say that, that moving on the impeachment issue with Donald Trump um, just really isn't worth it for the Democrats because... It's something that even if they were to impeach him in the House of Representatives, the Senate's not going to convict. And we know from the last time um, there was a partisan effort to impeach with Bill Clinton that it actually backfired on the Republicans. And I think the same thing would happen here with the Democrats, that it would just embolden or strengthen um, um, Donald Trump um, um, going into the 2020 elections. I think the other factor we should not... Dismiss at this point is that even if this is done with um, with Donald Trump in terms of let's say Mueller. Or the House of Representatives. Um, there are other issues that are still hanging out there. For example, is that the New York Attorney General, uh, New York State Attorney General, um, and the Manhattan um, Prosecutor Cyrus Vance Jr. Um, are looking at perhaps some other fraud charges with the Trump, ca- you know, with, with Trump and his Trump his own personal business. And so the the legal issues for Donald Trump don't end. Um, but I do think largely. The legal issues with the Justice Department are over, um, and now the question becomes, um, how do the Democrats use their investigatory powers under the Constitution in terms of moving forward? I think that's a big political question.
1: All right. We are chatting with Professor David Schultz. Uh, We are overdue for a quick break. So much more to talk about, obviously, the Mohammed Noor trial, uh, what's going on in the legislature. Uh, Professor Schultz has a very interesting blog about the controversy over the name Bedote uh, that has been attached to the names uh, or the signs at Fort Snelling. Much more ahead with David Schultz. You're listening to News Talk 830. It is 823, down to 67 degrees here in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy chatting with David Schill. So we want to get to a number of local issues, and I think we're going to after uh, we had uh, weather at the bottom uh, of the hour, the half hour, rather, but – um and, and we want to talk about the Mohamed Noor case. I, I'm fascinated by your blog um about the use of the word Bedote and the controversy over that. Republicans are so angry that the signs at Fort Snelling are saying Fort Snelling at Bedote. They they are threatening to cut off the funding. and They're going to punish the historical society. So we want to talk about that in our next half hour. But I want to ask you real quickly – your thoughts about the presidential race, um, Joe Biden coming out, uh, a lot of you know discussion there. He seems to be doing pretty well; seems to be in front. There are things, though, that are nipping at his heels. Past issues. Overall, how are you? How do you think things are going when it comes to this presidential race? Which, again, um, it is May. Uh, the clock, obviously, moving forward, uh, it is uh, eighteen months away. This presidential election.
2: I gave a couple of talks this week, I think one of them to the Uptown Rotary, and, it, and I, think, I think the title of my talk was um, how, to, how to Look at Elections or Understanding the 2020 Elections Like a Pro, and the, um, and the first statement I gave was to say that right now, ignore all the polls. Uh, and I say that because if we were to look at previous presidential elections approximately 18 months out, um, they're wildly inaccurate in terms of, of predicting what's eventually going to happen because think about even just three years ago if we looked at polls three years ago um, you know no one would have predicted based on those polls that Donald Trump was going to you know, you know win the presidency, let alone the Republican nomination. Um, Hillary Clinton was what 45 five to 50 percent Points against against Bernie Sanders in almost all the polls, and remember how close that turned out to be. So so polls at this point are are, are really inaccurate. But but having said that, um, you know. You know, Biden seems to be in the lead, although you're right. You're right. There are some some bleak spots for him. Um, There is the lingering controversy with Anita Hill, who also said that, you know, Joe Biden had called her and she was not happy with his response. Um, I think there is um, some concern. Um, for some of the more moderate, rather more, the more progressive faction of the Democratic Party, you know, that he may be a person out of place and out of time at this point. Um, so, so so, Biden, even though he's the leader and had a spectacular opening few days um, as, a, as a fundraiser, um, I, th- I think it's going to be a tough challenge at this point um, in, in terms for him. Um, I actually think probably as it's going to settle in in the next few weeks, um, it's not clear if there is going to be really a a, a a a consensus candidate at this point right now. The one thing, though, that I want to throw out that seems very, very odd at this point is that there are six women running for president of the United States in the Democratic Party. And I don't know what your sense is. Those six women don't seem to be getting a lot of press.
1: Right. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen, you know, what happens. There's still – and I think your point is is very well taken that there's still a, a long way to go and there can be game changers along the route.
2: Right. right. Yeah, I actually think at the end of the day um – Campaigns matter. I mean, and in my field of political, it sounds like a strange thing to say here, but there are some people in my profession of political science who think you can construct predictive models that say that based upon things such as the economy, job growth, Um, issues such as consumer confidence or approval ratings that you can predict elections about a year in advance, if not more. But at the end of the day, I'm still one of those people who think um, campaigns matter, narratives matter, strategies matter. Um, And I say that because we, 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 we see so many times, and I think 2016 was a great example where, We're in some ways, you know, Clinton, I will still argue, made many strategic mistakes in terms of campaigning, like she didn't come back to Minnesota or Wisconsin or or Michigan, you know, after losing to Bernie Sanders and lost two of those states and almost lost the third one, while Trump campaigns in all three states. And so so I do think campaigns matter. Unexpected things can happen. Um, We could have, and I hope it doesn't happen, Um, you know, we could have another recession you know, suddenly happen. I hope we don't get another terrorist attack. But something like that, those events could just completely change the dynamic of the presidential campaign.
1: Absolutely. All right. We are chatting with Professor David Schultz. We do want to take a break and give you some weather. When we come back, we want to talk about uh, the Mohammed Noor case. We also want to talk about changing names. We've got the issue with Fort Snelling and Badote, as I told you. Also, this issue of the court case involving the former Lake Calhoun, or is it the current Lake Calhoun, uh, or is it Bidet Makaska? Uh, we'll chat with Professor David Schultz on what he thinks coming up. Uh, so keep it here. News Talk 830. All right. It's 833 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Before we get to the Indian names, because I think that's just a, a fascinating topic, um, Let's let's talk about your take on the Noor trial and also this twenty million dollar settlement with the city of Minneapolis.
2: Yeah, this is interesting. So, so first, you know, I was actually talking to my students about this in a couple of different ways, and I said let's first bracket off the issue of, of, of race and religion, which is going to be a hard thing to do here. And I went through the, the judge's instructions, you know, to the jury. And we know that eventually, you know, the jury convicted on third-degree, what, murder, I think it was, and second-degree manslaughter, if I remember correctly. Um, and I said to him, could you, you know, given, given the facts, what we know like that, and most of my students said, yeah, that seemed reasonable um, in right. terms, of, or a jury could have reached that conclusion. And by the way, just for people to know here, um, under the state sentencing guidelines, um, the presumptive sentence is about 150 months, you know, for right. uh, for newer on this, you know, so this is quite a few. Years. This is a
1: significant um, amount of time. It's
2: a lot of time here. Um, but then we came back to the discussion of saying, okay, so how do we factor in the issues of race here? And, and what we wanted to talk about, and this is where the civil settlement fits in also. As I said, is the significance of the fact that he's the first police officer in Minnesota convicted of murder? Is it because of his race or the race of his victim um, or even the gender of his victim too and and then i think I think this is going to be part of the the ongoing controversy right now that for some people they're saying, well, look, given you know some of the other um, accusations of police use of force, uh, um, Castile, for example, and others, Jamal Clark, you know, why is it now that it's when it's an um, African American? Um, who is the officer, and it's a white Caucasian female who's the victim, you know, why do we, get a, you know, where do we get a guilty verdict? So this is going to raise lots of questions. And then also people are saying that, I've heard many people, including many of my students, say that this $20 million payout and how quickly the city agreed to it, to what extent does, is this also suggesting a, a double standard in terms of race? And, and, and I think this is, this is the kind of case that you walk away from, where i don 't think anybody 's happy, no matter what, in terms of convictions no or, it's just
1: the whole thing is just so it 's messy sad and it 's awful it 's just a horrible horrible thing because I mean this officer, yes, did, did something that the jury found him guilty of murder, but this is not a bad guy, and he 's not going to kill somebody again
2: no, what I was going to say is that is that I suspect that if he never went to jail. Um what's was-
1: the last you'd hear of him?
2: Yeah, I was going to say you're right, and I doubt he's a threat to society. You know, which gets to some broader questions about our incarceration policies. You know, in in Minnesota and across the country, where we may be putting far more people in jail or prison who are not threats to society, um, and we ought to be thinking about alternative ways of dealing with those who offend the law. That's that's sort of one set of issues. The other thing is in terms of how this is not done. It's not done the nor trial in terms of the discussion about it, but. Um, one has to assume likely appeal at this point. I can't imagine there won't be an appeal on this one. And, and just to sort of walk people through um, what, what can be appealed for those people who are not attorneys, you can't appeal the factual issues you know for example there's factual disagreements there for example um his partner Noor's partner said for example i i didn't hear like a thump on the back of the car um, Noor said yes i mean these are issues that an appellate court won't second guess um a jury because a jury determines facts they're going to say well we've assessed credibility we've we you know we've eyeballed Noor. we've eyeballed his partner these are the facts so you can't appeal on facts um what I think the grounds for appeal will be are at least a couple of possibilities. One is on, on evidentiary issues. And what I mean by that, did the judge include or exclude certain things um, for, um, from the trial that the jury should or should not have heard? And then second, I think there's going to be an argument that perhaps the jury did not apply Correct standards of law um, in terms of looking at um, whether a reasonable officer could have objectively feared for his life. That's a constitutional standard. And then there may be.
1: And how would you prove that? How would you. How do you do
2: that that 's a hard one to do because right. you would have to say that a re- that the jury that the, that the, um, the the judge perhaps gave either the wrong instructions to note you know to the jury um, which is a possible appeal there or you'd have to argue that no reasonable jury could have convicted the officer given the um, you know given the, um, um, the the facts and what the standards should have been I think that 's a hard one because as I posed to my students and I said, do you think a reasonable jury could have reached these conclusions? And they said, yeah, we think so. So, so I think it's going to have to be um, more along the lines of just general um, questions of did the judge include or exclude um, evidence, or, um, exclude or include evidence that shouldn't have, and then again, just let's say a general jury instruction in terms of what you had to what the jury had to find in terms of um, for guilt on the different charges. Um, I'm suspecting that's going to be the where where we where it goes. Um, and and but you won't get a a there ju- a, a court of appeals that will second guess the jury on the facts or say, well, we don't think a, a jury could have reasonably found um, Noor guilty on this. I think that's that's very hard to win on appeal.
1: Can can they use the speed of which the, the verdict came back, and can they use that against? this at all in other words it, it, the, the the jury came back very very quickly
2: we were for, all stunned by that
1: yeah for a case that that had um 60 witnesses and uh, almost a thousand exhibits
2: yeah um, un, un, unlikely unlikely you could do that that in general the courts um, are not going to peer into the content of jury deliberations. I mean, I, mean, I mean, the only way they could do that would be, for example, let us say, um, I'll make up something here. Um, let's say one of the jurors now comes, comes public and says, well, um, one of the other jurors, um, basically made some kind of racist statements during the or th- uh, during the deliberations or threatened us and we felt like we had to reach a certain verdict uh, in that case, you know the court's going to peer into what the jury did, but in general no um but but I was stunned because i don 't know about you um, I think it was like on, I was actually having um, um coffee um, on Tuesday morning with um, a friend of mine who's a former prosecutor, and, and we were amusing back and forth. And I was saying, well, if the verdict doesn't come in by Friday, um, I'm thinking hung jury. So so I, I wasn't expecting a verdict. And she said, yeah, I agree. I'm not sure if we're going right. to get a verdict before Friday.
1: Right. Well, the, the Philando Castile case took five days. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, this was uh, about 11 hours. No, it was because uh, I was in, in our newsroom and people were – we're stunned by that. Let, let me ask you, so 150 months, which obviously is what, uh, that's um, 12 years, is it?
2: 12 and a half years. 12 and
1: a half years, yeah. And obviously you can get a third off for good behavior. So that's, it's, it's a long sentence. That's, that's the, what the sentencing guidelines say, the presumptive sentence. Can the judge go below that or above that? I mean, how much discretion does the judge have?
2: Well, the, the- Presumptive is 150. The guidelines put us between 128 and 180. Um,
1: and what is he, what do you mean by presumptive? When pres- people say a presumptive sentence, presumptive
2: means that that the assumption is that the judge will do should do 150 um, 150 months um, unless there are reasons why the judge believes that um, there are reasons to to depart upwardly or depart below that. Um, but the, But the assumption will be that you pick one hundred and fifty months will be what it 's going to be, um, and then uh, but the judge is going to have to explain so for example, let us say um, this was actually particularly heinous in terms of he found um, something extenuating that he thinks. Um, that Noor would deserve, you know, more time. He could say, okay, even though the law is suggesting 150 months, um, I can go up as much as to 180 um I can push this up to 180 or something like that. Um, so, so that's a possibility. Um, uh, but there's going to have to be some reason, and the judge is going to have to explain that. Because if the judge were to upwardly depart, you know, add more, um, then that becomes grounds also for appeal. Now the other thing, remember, he was convicted of two different um, 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 counts there, you know, and and I'm assuming at this point also that these are going to be served concurrently right. um, and not consecutively, um, um, and and but that'll be something to watch for also when the sentencing comes in. And what I mean by concurrently is that. Um, He'll be sentenced for both of the convictions, and he'll serve them at the same time, yes. as opposed to saying you're going to serve 150 months for one, and I can't remember what the presumptive sentence is for the other one. I'm, I'm assuming they'll just yeah. happen at the same time.
1: Got it. Okay. All right. Listen, we are going to take a quick break. We're gonna when we come back, we're going to talk with Professor David Schulz about uh, Native American names, what their place is, what the, the law is. Uh, there are two separate controversies raging right now. One. Uh, the signs out at Fort Snelling say Fort Snelling at Bedote, which is apparently the original um, Native American name. And then also you've got Bede McCoskey, the uh, original Dakota name for uh, Lake Calhoun. That was thrown out by an appeals court. So we'll chat about that with David Schultz after this. You are listening to News Talk 830. It is 846, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. And, you know, one of the things that I mentioned, I probably should mention it more, is you've got this, this fabulous blog, Schultz's Take, which, um, has some great writing on it and, and some great opinions, but you weighed in on the Badote controversy. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the Historical Society put up signs at fort Snelling, or they I guess they made a slight change to the signs at, at Fort Snelling, so it says Fort Snelling at Bedote Bedote is the Native American word for what was what for Fort Snelling before it was Fort Snelling um, Your thoughts about this and a similar controversy going on with with Lake Calhoun versus Bedema McCska, what are your thoughts about first of all the Bedote thing what's interesting there is the Republican legislators ha- are threatening to punish the historical society. They're punishing them. Uh, this is like, you know, the trial, like you're not getting your allowance because you've done this, something bad um, by cutting off their funding because of, they, they tacked on this bedote. uh you, <laughs> Your thoughts?
2: Okay, so first off, um, they're cutting it off, and Senator Kiffmeyer says that. You know that this is revisionist history, and that Fort Snelling is a name that really unites everybody. And again, now I, part of my blog is is written like an academic, which I actually am, um, <laughs> and I point out the fact that that um, in many ways all history is revisionist history. That that. You know, history is always understood in terms of how we write from the present and look back to the past. That that you know what we determine to be historically important um, really really is a reflective exercise. And again, if you read my blog, I talk about a lot of historians and historical theory, historiography there in terms of um, of a bunch of theories like that. But the other thing that I point out there. Is that what we need to be thinking about? Is how um, Bedote, um, or rather Fort Snelling, as it's just listed, um, isn't necessarily a name that really unites all Minnesotans. That that uh, again, um, for Native Americans, Fort Snelling um, means what? Significant subjection of Native Americans. Um, People might not realize this also, but that. Fort Snelling um, is incredibly significant in a different way That there was a person named Dred Scott who was a slave who was brought from slave territory to Minnesota, which was free territory, sued for his his freedom, um, and the Supreme Court ruled against that. Ruling that um, that that there was no way that it, um, that our Constitution and our framers ever envisioned um, an African American to be free, declared that what um, African Americans were property, and strikes down the the Missouri Compromise, and this becomes one of the last precipitating um, acts for the civil leads to the Civil War. So for African Americans, the name. Um, Fort Snelling is incredibly divisive, and then I'm thinking, you know, well, um, what significance for new Minnesotans does Fort Snelling have? So the the upshot for that name is to say that, that I think the historical society saying, Fort building at Bedote is really an effort to try to make it what a more inclusive name right. for Minnesotans.
1: Right, and I, you know, I, I think, and, and your your point is very well taken, and and I, I like the blog because you you it, you are looking at it, you know, from from the academic perspective, but also just as as a generalist, and I do think that our lieutenant governor uh, Peggy Flanagan, who is uh, you know, Ojibwe. She is a Native American woman. She waited and said, "This is our history." Right. We're putting it at Bedote. So, I, 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 you know, um, I, I, I think your blog is really good, and I, I do think it, um, I think it, 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 it underscores that there's a history before. Yes, it was Fort Snelling, and I, I, I think that's fair. I think, and I think it's, I think. As and most, I think it's right, accurate. It is, it is and it's historically right. accurate. You're
2: right. It's it's been known for as Fort Snelling for what two what, what two hundred years, but it was known as Bedote for probably what I'm going to I'm going to make a guess at least a thousand years, if not more. Um, beyond that. So so if we're really talking about revisionist history, calling it just Fort Snelling, it's really revisionist, uh, right? Uh, more right. than anything else. Yeah. Right.
1: But, but but the legislature can theoretically do that.
2: Yes, they could. They could. Um, and, and that's why it reminds me of the story of what? The kid who takes the bat and ball and goes home if they don't get their way. Um, right. And it really seemed particularly childish um, to retaliate that way when I think the historical society is on the right grounds in trying to say, let's, right. let's, let's make this spot. A spot for all Minnesotans, right. which and, it should be.
1: Yeah, and, and we certainly don't want to take away anything from from those who are, you know, including my father-in-law was buried at Fort Snelling, and, and, and it's it's honoring uh, all of our wonderful, uh, you know, men and women in uniform. I, I, but I, I do think, I think it's important for all of us to n- realize that there was a history before this. Yes.
2: I was going to say, I mean, I, I I don't know if you could do this, but my suspicion is um, if you were to go... To Fort Snelling, put a shovel into the dirt and dig it up, um, you would find arrowheads and you would find um, the history of a Minnesota that goes back a 1,000 or 2,000 years.
1: Absolutely. All right. And, and there was another controversy on, on this score, uh, Lake Calhoun versus Bidet McCoskey. Lake Calhoun was renamed a few years ago to Bidet McCoskey, which is the original Dakota name. And I do remember in the course of this naming change process a few years ago, I do remember somebody throwing out there that there was this old state law that said if if a lake or a place had 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 a name for 40 years, uh, the DNR couldn't change it.
2: Yes. And the Court of Appeals basically ruled on that this week and said that the name change was was illegal um, um, and said that... Contrary to what the DNR was claiming, the commissioner lacked the authority, statutory authority, to be able to make the change. And even though the DNR said, "Well, we think there's there's some um, ambiguity regarding the what the law says," the court of appeals came back and said, "A, the law says what it says, pretty plain language," and then it also cited to some legislative history on this. Um, and I think. The court of well, I read it and I talked to my law students about this, and and we all think that the that the court of appeals got it right, but that's not the end of the story. Um, is in terms of the legal issues, um, we're not talking about what should be the the correct name or not. We're talking about from a legal point of view here. The issue that now complicates it is the fact that. We have the name changed and registered at the federal level.
1: Right, and, right. I love that part. Right. And this is the part, it's a, at no. the federal level, the name is Bidet McCoskey.
2: Yes. And this is the complex part now because at the state level, the name is now um, um, Lake Calhoun because the court said the name change was never legal, therefore it's, it's that. The question now becomes, and this is where my law students and I were, were trying to figure this out now, is that... Well, does this mean now that the federal government's going to be required to go back and change the name because in general states can't tell the feds what to do. Um, there's this, you know, principle called the supremacy clause that the feds get, you know, basically get to do what they want to do um, in many cases. So we have some Interesting legal issues here um, in terms of how it plays out i'm assuming this case goes to the Minnesota Supreme Court, um, but even if the supreme Court let's so if the Supreme Court overturns the decision okay then then at that point um, The issue with the federal government doesn't really matter. But let's say the Minnesota Supreme Court upholds the Court of Appeals. We've got two different names at this point, and I suspect we're going to see what? Um, Probably um, some federal lawsuit now compelling the federal government to change the name.
1: Right. Um, In terms of this older law that's on the books, I mean, is that the and and people say, well, this law has been ignored in other cases – as far as you're concerned, as you look at it, is that law something that stands?
2: Yeah, I think it does. Um, you can't you can't challenge the, um, let's say, the legality or the constitutionality of that law. Um, that's um, that that. I just don't see any grounds for that. The real question has to be: um, Did the Court of Appeals correctly interpret um, what the law requires, um, or or and did the commissioner um, and were they incorrect that the commissioner didn't have the authority to make that change? That's where the legal issue is going to have to be. And and again, as I read through the opinion. I thought the Court of Appeals made a a relatively um, sound analysis of the law. Now, again, I say that because whether I think the name should be um, Lake Calhoun or something else, that's a different story entirely. It's a question really of did the DNR have the authority to do what it wanted to do? And I think the Court of Appeals made a pretty compelling argument that um, that law's it's pretty clear. Um, in fact, I think also, um, as I, I can't remember if it was in the opinion itself or whatever, that the attorney um, um, at one point, I think, was representing the Parks Commission or whoever yeah. it was, raised questions and said, I don't think we can make this name change.
1: Right. And 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 that did come up, and they were like, well, we're just going to go ahead and do it anyway or yeah. whatever. Um, the legislature, though, is moving ahead with a possible name change. It did pass the democratically controlled House uh, the legislature is a whole nother mess here on, right. on what's going to happen. I mean, they have set these new deadlines to try and up, come up with, like, uh, financial targets for by tomorrow, by, excuse me, Monday. Monday. Um, not clear if that's going to happen. Not clear if this can be salvaged. Uh, we'll just have to see. But, but it seems like it ends in a mess every year.
2: It does end in a mess every year. And more often than not, in the last 20 years, we've had the worst track record in the country of states e- having either... Um, Partial government shutdowns are going into overtime. And at this point, I'm really skeptical that we're going to get the House and the Senate to agree on what's called target numbers by by Monday. Um, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to to reach a budget agreement before May 20th.
1: Right. And obviously, this is one of the years where... They have to do that. Otherwise, they will be shut down. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, as always, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate your time this evening.
2: Good evening, Leslie.
1: Absolutely. Take care. Bye. One and only, Professor David Schultz. And again, I do invite you to, to check out his blog. It's called Schultz's Take. Just go to Google and do that, and you will be able to get that. Well, listen, I do want to thank uh, the producer of this show, Susan Blanche. I also want to thank Devin Marshall for keeping us on the air and doing a great job. Uh, really been a lot of fun here uh, on this Saturday night. Tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. I will be live, as will Mike Augustanak, Senator Tina Smith, and the Speaker of the House, Melissa Hortman, our live guests.